0: this is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. This is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get it, why? Your connection
1: from the London market close to the US market action.
0: It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye, bye, bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan
1: Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon,
0: good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Ferrow You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB. Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. Let's get you the scores at the close on a FTSE this Monday down by 1.16%. London not alone. More pain in Italy. The FTSE MIP down by 2.43% as the standoff between the populists and the EU intensifies. In the United States the downdraft continues as well. The S&P 500 off by 6 tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq getting smashed about off by 1.27%. In the FX market a story for the Monday. Defined by dollar strength. Cable back down to 130.58, off by a half of 1%. Euro drowning in politics. The dollar strength story playing out against that as well. 114.75. And in the bond market, remember Columbus Day in the United States. So no trading for treasuries. The close on Friday, 3.23 on a 10 year, on a 2 year, around about 2.88. Call it 2.89. That's your cross asset story today. This Monday, let's get you up to speed on the top stories. Here's Charlie Powell. Hi, uh,
2: thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. Happy Monday. Day after sinking more than 150 million pounds into his Scottish golf courses, President Trump is yet to make a profit. His two resorts posted a combined loss of 4.64 million pounds in 2017. According to the latest filings of that, Trump's flagship Turnbury, 800 acre resort on Scotland's west coast, lost 3.4 million pounds, the fourth consecutive annual deficit since he bought the club in 2014. CoinFloor cutting its staff as The U.K. Bitcoin Exchange restructures its operations amid a sell-off in cryptocurrencies. Financial News reporting earlier today that the London-based exchange will cut most of its approximately 40 employees. And the world's longest flight making a comeback, that would be Singapore to Newark, New Jersey. Newark, by the way, is New York's other big airport. Advances in technology and the advent of aircraft that guzzle less and carry more fuel are helping make the Singapore route viable again five years after... $100 $100 oil contributed to the demise of the flight, which will take as long wow. as 18 hours, 45 minutes. Wow. Imagine that, cramped in coach. I did not know, Charlie, that they canceled the flight because of crude costs. I didn't, uh, and what struck me about that story is we're looking at uh, crude today, what? $75 a barrel, give or yeah. take 3 or $4? And I'm assuming that that uh, we're talking about West Texas rather than Brent there, but...
0: Uh, yeah, Brent's about you know $10 north of that at it, eight, 83 46
2: But well, I think what's interesting, so I said, okay, so if oil prices are that high why are you doing it again with the potential to go back to $100 a barrel a lot of people talking about that but apparently they're using new Airbus A350-900 aircraft and they are that efficient that could potentially make the difference also too from what I understand this is not a typical coach configuration so you're able to charge a lot more so you you know what I miss so just let me say Concorde Here's a way. If you, you you got a flight that can fly the distance, what they need now is a flight that can do it fast. Charlie, I'm with you. I mean, why did they ever get rid of Concorde? Well, it was it, it just didn't have a business model to make it work. Well, they didn't have it. Just wasn't making money. That's the issue there. And yet, though, it breaks my heart. There's a museum here in New York City called the Intrepid Air and Space Museum, and you can actually walk on board an old British Airways Concorde. It breaks my heart to walk on that aircraft because it looks like a modern plane that could fly today and yet it's there as a museum piece, it's and it shouldn't be. It's amazing. You see one of the old Concords when you leave, um, I forget which terminal it is.
0: You might know. Uh, when you terminal 3 coming out of Heathrow. Three, coming, out of Heathrow. Three, yeah. coming out of Heathrow. Yep. And it, it, I have the same feeling. Like,
2: why is it there? Why aren't we using this although, piece of technology? Although, let me, let me ask you this. Is that... I don't know that that is, quote-unquote, a real Concorde. I I don't know. I think it's a scaled-down model of a Concorde that that you You, see there. You would know better than I. And I also don't know if it's still there, but a couple of times at Heathrow, I've also seen uh, out out on some of the runways I've seen an old Concorde. That may be many years gone, though. 18 hours. I actually know someone that's just done this flight. They've gone from...
0: They've gone from New York on Emirates, I think, into Dubai, right. and then out of Dubai into Singapore. Okay, um, but to go direct, eighteen hours—that is a it, slog. It,
2: uh, right? Exactly. And, and just uh, on a personal note, side note, I'm planning a trip to both London and Israel coming up in December. One of the flights I looked at, which I did not take, was flying on Ethiopian Airlines from New York yeah, over to Addis Ababa, Addis Ababa up to Tel Aviv, with a fueling stop in West Africa in Togo. And
0: how much would you save doing that?
2: Uh, it was—it would cost more money and it took longer, there, and I couldn't come back via London, thereby completely obliterating the travel case for doing it.
0: And so. no doubt Mrs. Pellett would be slightly no, concerned I was, I was about going, your round a world trip.
2: Going slow, going solo on that one. I, I don't want to hear anybody whining with me for that long. Charlie so. Pellet
0: with another dig at Mrs. <laughs> Pellett. Um, Charlie's going to be back in about 26 minutes' time. I want to bring in Marcus Ashworth, who's been waiting patiently in London for us, as the standoff between Italy and the Europeans continues it appears to have intensified, Marcus. Just what is going
3: on um, well essentially uh, Matteo Salvini 's been throwing rocks um, at uh, particularly uh, Messrs. Juncker and uh, moscovici, the, bu- the budget chief, the budget commissioner so um, and i 'm not going to even re- re- reword or rephrase what he said because it 's pretty pretty unpleasant stuff it 's yeah. unnecessary he 's picking a fight in a telephone box, it seems. Um, with anyone, he'll 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 scrap with him, and uh, he just um, is making it worse. Obviously, deliberately, he's trying to um, run the sort of may elections, uh, local elections, and what have you, and, and MEP elections for European Parliament come up next year. He's trying to run them now, and it's it's obviously some form of tactic to um, wind up the EU. And I don't know what I've got him get some. Well, some I'm, just more local power, coming up some, I'm just trying to work out. Just trying to work out, Marcus,
0: to what extent. The markets are going to constrain their ability to keep this going until the European elections. I mean the ten years out another fourteen basis point. I think we uh, breached three hundred sixty earlier on. How much does the market constrain their ability to to get this through to the elections in may
3: Well, I think there's a number of things coming up. Obviously, in the next uh, few days, there is a couple of uh, uh, regional elections in Italy, which may be one of the one of the reasons why he's uh, doing this. But you know, really, the most important thing for the markets is October 15. though that might be October 20th when the formal budget is presented to the EU. Uh, we, from what we see and hear over the weekend, it was rejected in some form of letter, which is yet to come out formally. But apparently, the commission has rejected the the, the initial proposals. Um, and then, of course, October 26th is going to come a very big day. That's we know for sure. S and P are going to uh, review Italy's credit rating, and quite likely, as it's the last Friday of the month, that'll be Moody's as well at the same time after the close on the Friday. Both of them will, are are expected to cut by at least one notch. Moody's will probably leave, uh, therefore, Italy on triple B, um, so Baa3 negative. Which um, is literally one foot over the edge, and and that's 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 what's going to scare the markets. And then we've got a whole raft of other stuff coming up for for the end of the year before we even think about European elections. Yeah, but you know that's what they, the the Italians are trying to focus uh, on is that if you push us now, the, the net result will be a landslide for populist parties in in May, and therefore it'll all fall apart. So just give us. Let us have lots of uh, extra spending now. Marcus,
0: I'm always intrigued by what your base case is, um, just politically and what it means for markets. What is your personal base case on, on how this evolves and plays
3: out? Well, I mean, I, I'm surprised at how Salvini's paid it. He's paid it uh, hot, cold, hot, cold, and he's currently obviously running it hot. But, you know, he, he went very, very cool and chilled for a couple of two or three weeks, uh, and then just the last moment he's gone, all, he's gone all hot again. So he's clearly just playing... Um, but like a precedent perhaps uh, close to where you're sitting at the moment, you know, playing the paint to the galleries and playing this yeah. sort of um, guess where I am now and can catch me if we can type a strategy to to disrupt everything, um, and it's it's has worked well so far. I think he knows it puts the European uh, Commission and the European Union as a whole in a very awkward situation they don't want to be in, and therefore he thinks maybe that gives him more control. But it's only pushing. Uh, Italian yields up will continue to only push Italian yields up you read all the investment all uh, Bank reports come out on a Friday and um, you know all the big banks they're all bearish on BTPs now so in some senses the more he goes on there will become a point whereby yeah. it's fully priced in Marcus Ashworth,
0: it's great to have you with me. And it's been quite a day for markets as we get back to work this Monday. That's the story out of Italy. It's weighed on Italian assets, on bonds, on stocks, and on the euro, too. Up next on the program, we'll talk about the dollar strength on the other side and how much of that is driven by what's happening in China. China cutting the triple R rate once again. That conversation's next. This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. A story of dollar strength this Monday. Dollar China getting back to work, 6.93.07. The high for the session getting really, really close at uh, 60.93.35 to that seven handle. Up nine-tenths of one percent on the day today. It's a big move in the Chinese currency. The PBOC coming out and cutting the required reserve ratio. For the uh, fourth time this year, to uh, bolster growth. At the same time, Chinese markets catching up with the global equity route that they missed out on last week from being closed. So equities moving much lower. Bloomberg Economics saying it's not clear if the extra liquidity will put a floor under the market. It will be interesting to see what Marcus Ashworth thinks. Our Bloomberg opinion columnist, <laughs> who's still with us. Uh, Marcus, what's your view on what's happening? Well,
3: it's very clear. It's a no effect. Um, I mean, they. You, you know, this this used to move markets quite a lot, it's particularly a percentage point cut in the uh, uh, reserve ratio requirement. And uh, it's not had any effect. Why? Because, OK, simply put, Trump is winning. People are selling Chinese shares. Uh, they're worried about it's going to get worse. And yeah. it's, hit, it's hit not hitting U.S. shares. It's hitting Chinese shares. Therefore, by, you know, with him not doing anything... Um, it's making its case increasingly so. I mean, are the Chinese authorities worried about this? Well, yes, because they wouldn't be cutting the reserve ratio equivalent if they weren't. Um, Is it all they can do? No. Of course, they can do other things. But for the moment, um, it's not to have any effect because uh, economically this is going to hit China harder and it's hitting china harder because they export much more to the states and vice versa and now lots of different arguments you can say and you know different tariffs and different types of markets and they can do x and y and z yeah the practical reality is coming up to the number of midterms which is what this is all about uh any moves that china have made have not had an impact and i would expect if you believe that the north korean situation is controlled by china effectively which is certainly what mr trump thinks then, uh, if there is going to be another meeting between uh, Kim and Trump, as has been mooted, then uh, either China puts a stop to that, and/or China throws a bone towards Trump. So that's what I'm keeping an eye on: out whether or not there's going to be some form of attempt to rapprochement from the Chinese side, because. Essentially, they are, they are not having any impact otherwise. Or they shift more aggressively towards an easing bias.
0: Um, Marcus, that seems to be the direction of travel, incrementally yeah. in baby steps.
3: If you look at, in uh, front I'm looking at today, the amount of, um, it's called the impulse, the impulse, uh, credit stimulus that they put into the system. Yeah, the credit actually, impulse. Yeah, they have actually uh, been effectively withdrawing that credit impulse steadily. Um, for deliberate reasons, they, they massively overdid it to the upside, uh, and it's now currently running in a negative 5% of GDP, effectively, of what they're essentially taking out of the market, withdrawing stimulus. Could they reverse that? Well, sure, but every time they do that, it has less and less effect, and it costs them a fortune. They can dial up the debt, they can switch it to more local government debt, but that doesn't get them or solve anything for them. So... It's a difficult situation. At some point, they're going to have to uh, go one way or t'other. I mean, yeah. obviously, um, for the moment, you'd probably expect, as you said, they would ease further, and they've got plenty of room to do so.
0: Do they do that through the FX channel? We're approaching seven. Dollar China, dollar yuan at seven a couple of years ago might have scared people, Marcus, and I just wonder what it means now.
3: They they just are very careful. The last time this happened, it went very badly for them. I don't think they want a a weaker currency. Um, It's something which is sort of almost, not say out of their control, but it's not something they desire. Um, And... What they really don't do is is do anything which is obvious. they really wait until the market has got itself one way and they go back the other way and they try and and squeeze uh, the speculators out so for my mind i think I don't think that's something that they'll they're more likely to push it back up you know as in a stronger currency than the other way. We've got
0: think. some convergence finally though Marcus, it just came from the u s catching up to the downside um it's a global route now, isn't it
3: Well, I mean I think the u s is 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 to stand out. Different, different stories to the rest of the world and, that's, and that, that, that gap has, has been widening there's always going to be a, a bit of ebb and flow on it but for far as I'm concerned the US economy is running so strong at the moment which is, it's got its, got its own problems, don't get me wrong yeah. but um, it makes the difference between everyone else that much worse and that's what's helping Trump's foreign policy
0: Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg opinion columnist great for you uh, to be on a programme with us to catch up with you on all things Italy and China two big events in this market another one, Brazil I caught up with Monica Duvall from the Peterson Institute. Take a listen to what she has to say after the commercial break. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Early today, Tom Keene and I spoke with Monica DeBolt, Peterson Institute for International Economics senior fellow. We talked about the slowdown in China and the fact the Federal Reserve keeps hiking here in the United States. We also discussed what is happening, politically speaking, in Brazil, where Monica is a bit of an expert. Take a listen to what she had to say.
4: The overall context is, is in the world is currently all very strange because in the middle of all this, we've got this trade war that we don't know exactly what kind of implications it's going to have for the global economy. On top of that, we have investors wary of emerging markets because of rising interest rates in the U.S. and because of vulnerabilities um, in certain parts of the world, notably Argentina and Turkey, but other places too, including Brazil, which um, you you two were just mentioning a few minutes ago in terms of the presidential election that took place yesterday. So there's a lot of unknowns out there.
0: A ton of unknowns out there, but do you view the slowdown in China as something separate from the trade story, Monica? And to what degree?
4: I do. I do view it view it as something separate from the from the trade story. It's hard to say to what degree because we have a very hard time, very very hard time as economists integ- inter- integrating the trade stories with the overall macroeconomic stories. I mean, basically, our macroeconomic models are very are very, um, we can't quite integrate our macroeconomic models with our trade models. So we have a lot of difficulty quantifying the effects of one on the other, but certainly there's impact.
5: And one of the great things here, and it can be Brazil more commodity-based or China is is goods, but the service sector, I mean, all these dynamics we're dealing with now, Monica, are amended or adjusted because so much of the world now is a growing service sector economy
4: exactly exactly and this is one aspect that we um have been struggling with trying to understand exactly how th- these different linkages between goods markets and services markets and in particular the services the services economy um, reacts right. to all of the all of the things that are currently taking place.
5: What's the dynamic that you and this, of course, goes with, with the Heritage of Peterson of Nick Lardy? What is the dynamic of a service sector trade debate between China and the U.S. and the U.S. and China?
4: Well, that's a that's an excellent question. I mean, looking at it from just what's been going on between China and 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 the U.S. Um, it seems like that's not being really taken into account. We have been seeing tariffs back and forth on goods, um, but obviously all of these things are going to affect services at the end of the day. And so the big question to me is, how much do we unhinge the services economy? Yeah. And by unhinging the services economy, how do we? How much do we unhinge the global macro economy?
0: Can you walk us through, Monica, what is happening in Brazil? Just a very simplified version from where I'm sitting is that we have a market friendly candidate in Bolsonaro is that a market friendly candidate that can be consistent over the next several years because it's also my understanding that he actually admits he doesn't have much of an understanding of economics and defaults to someone else on some of these big issues
4: well, here's where the strangeness of this election comes in. So Bolsonaro has de- definitely caught the market's attention as a market-friendly candidate because of the person he appointed, or has seems to have appointed as his economic chief, so to speak. So the per- that person is a U.S. is a Chicago-trained economist, an ultra-liberal, pro-market um, person. But Mr. Bolsonaro, his actual track record as a deputy in the lower house where he's been for the past 26 plus years, is that he's been voting consistently with the Workers' Party, with the PT. Um, He was actually one of the very vocal um, um, anti-stabilization plan, um, the Plano Real that was put in place in the 90s to stabilize inflation. He was vocally against that at the time. And he has espoused views which are much more nationalistic and state intervention in in a lot of state interventionism than um, than markets seem to realize at this point, which is kind of strange because all these views are out in public. So here's the here's the catch-22 question: the um, the fact that he has appointed an ultra-liberal pro-market economist as his economic chief. Does that mean that he's actually going to delegate every single economic decision to this guy as president, given that he himself, Mr. Bolsonaro, has quite the authoritarian streak? I think it's very hard to wrap our minds around that.
0: Well, Monica, I would say some of the EM tourists, um, and I hate to insult some of the people that probably have got behind that rally me? In, um, in Brazil over the last week. They're sitting here thinking that this is the view of Bolsonaro. Can I just put you on the spot, Monica, and and ask you the question as to whether you think they are wrong?
4: I do. I do think they're wrong. That's really
0: interesting. Tom, this is really interesting because the market has really got behind this candidate.
4: Yes.
5: As
0: if he is going to introduce and implement and follow through on some very market-friendly proposals.
5: What is their fiscal take? Finally here, uh, Monica de Bol. what is the fiscal stance of Brazil? Can they afford on a debt and a tax revenue side to affect Bolsonaro policy?
4: So the fiscal situation is very dramatic. Um, The fiscal deficit, the nominal deficit is pretty high at around eight to 9% of GDP. There's a two and a half primary deficit in place. Unless the situation's fixed, this this deficit is likely to rise over the medium term. Debt to GDP at the moment, going by the IMF's methodology, which is different from the Brazilian Central Bank's methodology, obviously that one is lower, um, the figure's lower. Mm-hmm. But the IMF has Brazil at about 85% to, uh, of GDP um, debt, public debt and the and the and the prospect is that over the next 2 years that number could reach as high as 100%. Oh. So it's a fiscal situation that's completely unhinged and unsustainable and the measures that would have to be put in place would have to be put in place rather right. urgently. Um Mr. <clears throat> Bolsonaro has not outlined what his plan for fixing the fiscal problems will be, Um, nor has his economic advisor, by the way, who for the past three weeks has completely disappeared from public view view because he has clashed with Mr. Bolsonaro on a couple of important um, issues. One of them is exactly a financial transactions tax that he wanted to bring back.
0: That was Monica de Peterson Institute for International Economics Senior Fellow, joining Tom Keane and I to discuss the global economy and the political situation as it evolves in Brazil. That's the situation in Brazil and the global economy next up on the programme we talk about Goldman Sachs and its retail banking arm pulling back on some targets. That conversation's next. This is Bloomberg.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAP Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jonathan Ferro. At the close today, the FTSE 100 lower by 1.16%. Lower in the United States as well. The S&P 500 softer by half of 1%. The NASDAQ, the tech route, continues. We're down by 1.17%. In the FX market, many reasons for a stronger dollar today. A weaker euro off the back of the political situation in Italy, taking euro-dollar down to 114.76. And as China plays catch up with financial markets, a global equity route and a stronger dollar story, dollar-yuan climbs to 6.93 in the Chinese equity market, well and truly falls out of bed. The Shanghai Shenzhen CSI 300 index down by 4.3% at the close today. That looks ugly. Where you do get a break is in the Treasury market because it's a holiday for the Treasury market in the United States. It's Columbus Day, so the 10-year yield unchanged from Friday because it's not trading. We closed at Friday at 3:23 on a two-year note. We closed at around 288. And to round out the whole thing for you, cross asset commodities crude lower, Brent down by one percent at 83.31, WTI down by about three quarters of one percent, negative 0.73 percent to $73.80. That's your cross asset wrap. Then let's get you some top stories as well. Here's Charlie
2: Bell. Hi, thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. People familiar with the matter say Airbus's latest order for the A380 super jumbo has reached. An- an impasse amid drawn-out talks involving the engines potentially putting in jeopardy a crucial deal seen as a lifesaver for the giant aircraft. The people say the $16 billion record for as many as 36 additional double-decker aircraft has hit a snag as Emirates negotiates with Rolls-Royce on price and fuel burn on an engine that's already falling short of performance parameters. And an important development today involving Airbus. We now know who the future CEO is going to be, Airbus has selected Guillaume Fari as its next CEO. He currently serves as president of Airbus's commercial aircraft. CoinFloor cutting staff as the UK Bitcoin exchange restructures its operations amid a sell-off in cryptocurrencies. Financial News reporting earlier today that London, uh, the London-based exchange will cut about most of its 40 employees, uh, financial news citing two unidentified people familiar with the matter. As for Bitcoin, up today by 1.2%, 60 on Bitcoin. Latest from the news desk, Jonathan Farrell, back to you. Charlie Pellett, thank
0: you. What a weekend for news, Charlie. The allegations from Turkey that a journalist went into a Saudi embassy and never came back out and was murdered. Um, the reports that the Chinese have essentially detained the former president of Interpol, now former president of Interpol, because once he was detained, he resigned. Um, I couldn't keep up over the weekend, could you?
2: And, and that was just Sunday. Saturday, we had uh, the whole Kavanaugh confirmation process in the United States, and that was something that people uh, couldn't avoid watching either, watching that vote because uh, it was televised live. The only thing that disturbed me on a personal matter, and you can talk about this, the protests that happened in the Senate as the vote was being taken, To me, that was shameless, absolutely shameless. There are some places where people should debate. They should be civil. And, uh, you know, we, we see these are things in Parliament. to protest? No, you're not. You get hauled out. You get, Interesting. You, well, are you allowed to? Of course you're, quote-unquote, allowed to if you're willing no, to pay the mean, consequences. I but no, I mean meant inside those rooms. No, absolutely not. I didn't absolutely know that. Not. I just felt, you know, I mean, we're, we're in theory. We're, so how do they get inside, Charlie? Eh, you're just, well, it's open to the public, and that's one of the risks of a you know, democracy. But, you know, you're free to protest outside. I, I You know, because one day there's going to be somebody else that's going to be protesting against a view that you, Hold, and you know it it should be a place in which people air their differences civilly. In my opinion, a lot of politics over the weekend, Charlie. A lot of politics. A lot lot of stuff going on. But you know what? I I had a great weekend. Not that anybody cares, but I went to a marvelous bar mitzvah on Saturday night. Had a lot of fun doing it. Deep in New Jersey, I have no idea where it was. Did in New Jersey, did
0: you know who the bar mitzvah was for? Yeah, I, I did. I up. did. It was
2: a friend's daughter. But okay. but 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 then you, you know a the bat mitzvah. Not a the bar mitzvah, mitzvah. That is correct. Absolutely right. But that but <laughs> that, that said, it's a stereotype that when you go to New Jersey, you get lost. I got lost. That's neither here nor there.
0: Okay.
6: Oh, I, th- I, th- I thought the stereotype was not that you got lost, it's that
0: you, you ended just did, you just up didn't under go. about six feet of concrete. I thought the stereotype was you, sh- you just didn't go,
2: Charlie. <laughs> no, no, I, I like a party. I like people, you know, hey, booze, people, dancing music, okay. and a great DJ, fantastic DJ, by the way. But that's... All right, well, I'm pleased yeah. you had fun. Yeah, I did, thanks. All right,
0: Charlie, you know, it's a forum for Charlie Pellett to tell us about his life. <laughs> <laughs> the cable on Bloomberg Radio. Charlie, thank you. Joining me around the table here in New York, Cameron Christ. You heard his voice already. Macro strategist for Bloomberg. Remain Bostick dropping by two. Our markets correspondent for Bloomberg TV and radio. Cameron thought it was really interesting, that headline across that the Bloomberg a number of hours ago, that Goldman wants to reduce the rapid expansion of his online lending platform. Um, it's called Marcus, apparently doing really well in the UK just in terms of accounts that have been opened. But what does it say? What's the wider story that comes from that one data point?
6: I think there's <clears throat> there's two aspects to it. One is that Goldman is still running its firm with a sort of, uh, shall we say, a proprietary trading hat on. They're still essentially taking economic and market views and having that inform their business decisions in, in close to real time. And number two is pretty clearly that they view certainly the U.S. economy uh, as in some sort of late cycle phase where – Typically, you see credit decisions being made that are that are swiftly regretted once the cycle turns. When money is cheap, uh, and credit is free, you see a lot of money go to fairly dubious propositions. Um, now, that's particularly the case with these online lending platforms, where in the U.S. certainly Marcus is competing with peer-to-peer. Lending platforms where let's just say the, the, the lenders may not be as sophisticated yeah. in terms of the allocation of credit as someone like Goldman is. right
7: I wonder if this was just them not necessarily being to execute as well as you know some of the expectations were because when you look at the broader, but when you look at the broader environment, where where's the delinquencies at? Where, why are we so concerned that there's some sort of
6: <laughs> well, the, the point is that you pull back before the delinquencies emerge.
7: Well, yeah, I mean that's fine, but I mean, I mean, right now we're at a level where I mean the delinquents aren't anywhere near what we saw in the last financial crisis. But
6: I think if you if you talk about somebody who's voluntarily pulling back from lending targets, I'm not sure if. You know, i.e., they're going to lend less than the, the organic demand for loans. I'm not sure that, that speaks but to the it that it's, to it's an extension
0: of what you're trying to say, Cameron, is perhaps that they've had to pull back on the targets because the demand for the loans just isn't there. Well, I mean think
6: that's, that's, that, that's what Romain is suggesting. Uh, yeah, but
0: the, the kind of stories they cross over because to hit the targets, they would have had to have been more aggressive to do so. Mm. Um, and I guess you take a credit view on the other side whether you can be that aggressive going into next year. And the answer they come out on the other side of is no.
6: Yeah, well you look at what's going on, say, in Italy, and I'm not saying that the B- the travails of the BTP market should necessarily directly inform whether Goldman is willing to lend money to Granny Smith yeah. you know to to put an extension on her house. But Italy is an example of what happens when the credit market turns or when the, the willingness to finance turns and things can go can go pear shaped in a hurry. Now sort of the, the recession twenty twenty is still this sort of vague consensus view. Um, so that naturally leads to the question of when do you start, if you will, preparing a business for it? Well, the credit market is always the first to turn, mm-hmm. um, and the, 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 the premise would surely be that as the economy slows next year, which it almost inevitably will because it won't have quite the same magnitude of fiscal tailwind, that's, that's when the bad decisions of this year and perhaps last year start to materialize. Uh, so better to be, you know, it's better to, better to pull out sort of two quarters too early than two quarters too late.
0: Yeah, and it might also be that there was a change at the top that I think took place last week. David Solomon in. Um, yeah. Goldman Sachs is uh, CEO. Steps aside, Lloyd Blank,
7: fine. Yeah, you would have to think that would be part of it too. Yeah, um, yeah it will be just nice. I mean, I get, you know, my mailbox is stuffed full of... Uh, you know, Marcus envelopes, you know. Take a loan. Me. So it would be loan. nice to get a few, few, few fewer <laughs> of those, Yeah,
0: Cameron Christ, <laughs> remain bostick. Guys, it's great to have you with me. Next spotter program, we continue to talk about the banks as we look ahead to bank earnings coming out in the United States this Friday. From New York for London, this is The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. lot to look ahead to this week, bank earnings and a big week of Treasury issuance. We're going to get about $230 billion worth once the Treasury market reopens and the government gets back to work. With me to discuss is Cameron Kreis, macro strategist for Bloomberg, and Remain Bostic, our markets correspondent as well. Before we get to the Treasury issuance, let's talk about the bank earnings this week, Remain, What are you looking for?
7: Uh, well, I well going sticking with the idea of, of loan demand and loan growth, I think that could be one of the weak spots that we see. I mean, we saw, saw that the last uh, two quarters from the big banks and even the regional banks. And uh, you know at least the expectations of what investors were looking for with regards to, you know whether it's personal loans, mortgages, uh, you know basically all of the consumer loan uh, categories uh, just really hasn't lived up to expectations. and I think we can see that this quarter. Uh, Starting on Friday.
0: Isn't it amazing that the economy's done so well, remain, but these stocks have underperformed the market by so much for so long?
7: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think too, though, when when you look at, you know, if you're trading this based on the yield, uh, on rising yields, I mean, you've kind of been faked out already a couple of times this year where, you know, we had these spikes in uh, yields and they didn't necessarily hold. Uh, and you had rallies on the back of that uh, with regards to financial stocks. And I think this time around, there seems to be a little bit of reticence that uh, of whether or not uh, uh, 3% will hold and whether or not it's time to pile back into these banks. But the other issue, again, is that you know, even with the rise in yields, there is an issue of uh, just how much business they're generating. Uh, and there's a lot more competition that they didn't have to deal with, say, yeah. you know, a couple of years ago.
0: we just started to get some statements, Cameron. And I'm just wondering how sustained this move could be. Looking at the yield curve, two's tens getting out to a grand total of 34 basis points. I mean, sub 20 in August. There were some worries. We might be heading towards inversion. Wow. What's what's behind the steepness?
6: Well, a steepening curve, a bear steepening, which is what we've seen, is essentially um, a validation of robust economic growth. Historically, it's been associated with periods of, of very, very strong growth, and and that's essentially what we're what we're seeing. Um, you know the Atlanta Fed GDP now for Q3 is four percent plus. Yeah. Uh, second, which would be the second straight quarter of four percent growth. Um, so it's hard to argue that it, it's wrong in that sense. I mean, I think the the fears over inversion were were well overblown. Um, I've on the terminal. I've written about this probably ad nauseum to to people that read me. Um, uh, and how far can it go? Well, I tend to think we're going to replicate the um, the trend of the mid, or excuse me, the late 1990s, which was a previous sort of Goldilocks era, uh, where the curve was flat, but positive yeah. for an extended, an extended period of time, say between zero and 50 basis points. Um, what I would say is that it's a very simplistic analysis, but if we look at the slope of the curve, versus the S&P 500 essentially since Trump got elected. There's a very strong relationship which you, you uh, probably wouldn't be surprised at. Uh, and roughly speaking, every five basis points in twos, tens is worth about a percent on the S&P. So five basis point flattening on the curve essentially implies the S&P goes up a percent. Five basis point steepening implies the S&P goes down uh, a percent. So we've steepened like and this is two stands. That's tenths. not
0: the relationship people would expect, Cameron. Well, I think that it's, the steepness is negative for equities.
6: Um I think maybe they shouldn't expect it. Uh, it. and remember it's not the it's not this is talking about the shift in the curve, not the gotcha. level sort of the, it's, level it's of the, the curve. the price change. So, yeah. Um and historically actually when the curve steepens rapidly, that's that's essentially a signal of incipient recession. And the equities, rates are going to equities, be equities trade terribly. Yeah. So um, everyone talks about, well, when the curve inverts, that's awful. It's actually not when the curve it's inverts. The, it's the bull steepener. Or even as the curve remains inverted, it's the bull steepener that's essentially the clarion call to get, you know, to get out of dodge, get out of stocks, and pile into the, you know, pile into sort of the belly of, of the curve.
0: Fascinating stuff, guys. You're going to stick with me. Cameron Christ from A. Bostick of Bloomberg as we continue to digest what's happening in the bond market. A breakout in treasury yields. Is this the beginning of something bigger? Some real debate over that, given that there isn't much of an inflationary component behind the sell-off recently. That conversation's coming up next. This is Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This is The Cable live across the capital on TAP Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Coming up here's your week ahead. Tomorrow the IMF presenting its world economic outlook which um, Cameron Christ is incredibly excited about. It's going to go through the whole thing. Look at all the forecasts. It's like your Super Bowl, isn't it? The IMF with the world economic <laughs> outlook. Wow.
6: Well, it's a bit like uh, <laughs> it's a bit like navigating in a car by looking through the rearview mirror. They're they're typically uh, the last of the party when yeah. it comes to uh, capturing the turn. Remain.
0: It's a thing, isn't it? I, I just think Wall Street just sort of shuts at IMF world economic outlooks it's when you have like a real sort of a massive spread between what journalists care about and what the street cares about and journalists Mm -hmm. will write up that story and they'll go with their headlines and then the street will be like "Uh, when was the last time i lent on an imf
7: report (laughs) yeah i don't don't know know. i I gotta start hanging around better journalists i I don't know none of the journalists i know really (laughs) care either but um (laughs) you know some editors care i guess
6: asking (laughs) i mean actually i'll I'll shut up I i was gonna say asking a journalist to read a 200 page document is probably a uh, show <laughs> <laughs> I'm frankly asking a hedge fund punter to read a 200 page document as easy that's, as that's, that's right? true
7: as well the, um, the pres- you're saying Christine Lagarde can't move markets
0: exactly what I I'm saying she can move markets in Greece and Argentina and anywhere the IMF yeah has I, I, you know, when it,
6: when it if, you know of her and the executive board have to make a decision whether you're going to enter a, a country yeah. in a program or not then obviously yes but yeah. in terms of what you know in terms of what they think about the state of the world it's sort of it's almost as bad as the the sort of the the letter from 50 economists mm-hmm. you know that such and such is a bad idea or well, yeah. they you know they're almost always wrong
0: i think is it fair to say they anchor um pre-existing consensus expectations
6: Well, I I think it's safe to say that they operate on a very methodical publication time frame. Um, And so that by the time they're ready to publish, any information that they're reacting to has already been well absorbed by the market. Yeah,
0: so that's one of the events happening tomorrow. Another one, the U.S. president holding the latest in a series of rallies ahead of the November 6th midterm elections, Mm. this time... In Iowa, um, Wednesday, permanent representatives to the European Union discussing Article 50 in the UK exit plan. Going to get UK trade balance, industrial production, construction, GDP data as well. Look out for that. And then it's the inflationary stuff that gets kind of interesting. Remain, um, US PPI Wednesday and US CPI Thursday. Right. Important dates for this week, remain.
7: Uh, well, it's important, I guess, if we're looking for some validation that inflation might actually have, uh, you know, some sort of a been some sort of the reason behind the recent rise in rates. Uh, I'm not sure that I, I'm quite buying into that argument, but I think a lot of folks are going to be focused on that to see if there is some evidence. To so be a sustained sell-off here, Cameron, you need an inflationary element to it. There wasn't
0: much evidence that that was the case last week.
6: Well, no, you know, again, it was down to to, to growth and expectations um, of, of top line, uh, or excuse me, um, real uh, real economic activity. Uh, a, a sell-off generated. Or engendered by inflation would be actually even worse yeah. because typically speaking, when inflation is broadly contained and growth is strong, the central bank can control the pace of its tightening very, very clearly. And they, they only tighten when they want to. Um, whereas if there are signs of inflation or inflation expectations becoming unanchored, then the perception is that the central bank essentially has to tighten rates because they have to. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look at Turkey and Argentina, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And that's not exactly a uh, that's not exactly a winning formula for either the economy or financial markets.
0: You'd have to imagine that at some point the issuance coming out of the Treasury remain is going to become more demanding across the yield curve. Um, $230 billion this week. I also wonder on the other side of it whether we're going to see some real strong demand come into these auctions because we're back out to model year highs on the long end of the
7: curve. Well, I don't think the demand is going to be much stronger than what we've seen, which is, you know, I guess somewhat below average. Um, But as far as like the impact goes, I don't know. I mean, I think the market has actually absorbed it uh, relatively well. I mean, there was a lot of gloom and doom, remember, at the start of this year when we talked about the increase in treasury issuance. And that didn't really materialize to the extent that some folks said it would. Just to round out the week, um,
0: your data looks like this Friday. U.S. import-export prices, consumer sentiment, Eurozone industrial production. Then I think it's the big one for a lot of investors. It's the beginning of the quarterly earnings season with J.P. Morgan third quarter earnings and Citigroup third quarter earnings. We touched on this, Remain. It's really interesting. The banks have beaten estimates but underperformed the market. Yeah, They've beaten the benchmark in terms of the numbers expected. And then underperform the benchmark. It's it's quite fascinating. And every time it happens, people come out and say, well, this could be as good as it gets for the banks. And then they deliver again. And still, you don't get the stock price performance.
7: No. And I think this is, this is going to be a more interesting earnings season, because I think the expectations are way lower on a relative basis to where they were heading into the last couple of earnings seasons. I mean, people uh, just haven't really priced in um, the type of rise that they were expecting before. So it does set up the possibility that if there is sort of that beat and raise type of situation that you could actually see uh, a rally in the stocks that didn't materialize uh, the last quarters. But, you know, it doesn't really seem like anyone is buying uh, the long term uh, health uh, in terms of their business health uh, for the banks uh, the way they um, we, the way we thought they would uh, and in this rate environment.
0: I'm always interested sort of going into any particular earnings season or any event to understand where the bias is. And Cameron over the last couple of quarters now we've been waiting for earnings earnings beat and it's not just the financials and you get a whole host of people coming out and saying well this is as good as it gets forget about the quarter that's just gone get ready for 2019 because you're going to get a slow down the, the comparables to, to a year where you had a tax cut and where you didn't have a tax cut going to be quite clear. You're going to be hard to beat it. Um, is that going to be the bias going into this? I don't care what you throw at me. Show me 2019.
6: Well, I think to a degree, and there's, there's a couple of other dimensions here. Um, one is if we are to take the rise in wages, the acceleration in wage growth seriously, well, that implies lower margins. Moving forward, if companies are having to pay their workers mm-hmm. more, and certainly the anecdotes of, la- of bottlenecks across various sectors of the labor market are rife, if, if that's reflected in higher wages moving forward, well, that's obviously uh, less in the bottom line for companies. And I think number two, perhaps even more important, will be the message surrounding the tariffs and the trade tensions. Um, you have seen 2019 expectations nudge a little bit lower, but if the message from corporate America is that it's really going to hit earnings, then that could be the catalyst to send expectations and the market down.
0: Cameron Kreis, Remain Bostic, Bloomberg's very own and some of our finest as well. Thank you for joining me. That does it for The Cable this Monday, a full week of market action coming up through the week right here on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio.